Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. Welcome to the Land of Israel Fellowship. So good to see you all. So nice to see you. I love seeing all of your faces. Thank you for joining us every week. I just, I can't tell you how much strength it provides me. It provides Tehillah. I don't know if you've been watching, but you know, the Torah that Tehillah has been teaching lately has just spread like wildfire all over the world. Thousands and thousands of views on multiple platforms, on YouTube, on WhatsApp, just like she is, um, it's almost like chosen for this time to bring the messages of the Torah to the world in the most unbelievable way. And there's no way that she would be doing that if we didn't have our Sunday meetings and she's preparing for the Sunday meetings. And it's like this platform has encouraged her to bring forth so much Torah and so much prayer. And, you know, it's such a dark, scary, chaotic time. And us coming together as the world is so fractured in such a beautiful display of unity from so many different backgrounds and so many different places around the world. Um, there's just nothing like it. It is beyond a blessing in our lives. And before we kick it off, um, what I want to try to do is share a little bit about what it's like to be in Israel now, because we've been at war now for more than a hundred days. And that's a lot of days to be at war. The Yom Kippur war, for example, that was in 1973, and that was one of Israel's biggest wars, was 16 days. And Israel has now been at war for over 100 days. And you just got to wonder, like, what is going on here? Because there's so many processes that are happening. It's like we're getting a root canal or something, a wisdom tooth that's being extracted from us. And it's like this long process that Israel is going through. And, I, and it's like one thing to know the news, but it's a whole other level to feel what we're feeling. And that's really what I want to try to give over. And if you look at this picture here, that was a school ground in a lot. And the kids were coming out of school, walking to go home. And all of a sudden they hear sirens and they just bolt for shelter because missiles are going to be landing around them at any moment. And you, know, you can see those are like little children bags. Those are like five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old bags. And so, you know, people are thinking about the war in Gaza and soldiers that are falling, but like it's affecting everyone everywhere. And now after a hundred days of reserve duty, many, many soldiers are being um, released from duty. And the re-entry syndrome is really overwhelming for them. I have friends that are telling me they just it's too hard for them to go back to being civilians right now. Imagine for 100 days, they were in Gaza, fighting the forces of evil in the world, sleeping on the ground, eating tuna fish and beans, going to the bathroom wherever they could find, You know, being shot at, rockets, bombs following them, terrorists coming out of tunnels, shooting at them. Just 100 days like that, and now they're just going to go back and go to their job in front of a computer now? Like, that is difficult. I mean, one of my friends who, um, he's in charge of 20 tanks. And he has been released from the army now for at least one week. 
and he came back and his wife wanted to schedule him a massage and you know try to like it just whatever she could to like help him and feel better and he's like do not make my schedule i've been made a schedule for me now for 100 days i want freedom right now i love you thank you for thinking of me but i just need freedom i've been a soldier for 100 days and just people are just like living within this reality of war but yet they have children and you know being so hard and then coming home and needing to be so soft and it's just impossible saturday night we get a phone call from tahila's mom and she says, hey, we had two tickets to Comedy for Kobe. Would you guys like to go? Comedy for Kobe is a once a year event that happens where this Jewish comedian named Avi Lieberman brings top tier American comedians to Israel. And it's a fundraiser for the Kobe Mendel Foundation, which supports the like the families that are have lost loved ones in terror attacks or in the army. And they have you know, all these different programs to help the bereaved families. And once a year, they have kind of like a fundraiser and the tickets that you buy for the comedy with Kobe go to help the Kobe Mendel Foundation. And the truth is, it's one of the best nights of my year. It's so funny. And because they know that it's in Gush Etzion, in Judea, they tell the comedians, listen, this isn't Tel Aviv. You got to keep it clean. Tahila and I love stand-up comedy, but sometimes it's just it's just unholy. So it's like unpleasant. But when they come to Gush Etzion, they you know it's going to be a really just like pure comedy with no guilt. It's just so funny. And I remember thinking to myself, do I really want to go to a stand? I didn't even know that was happening. I'm so removed from that world. And I didn't even know that there was a comedy fundraiser happening in Gush Etzion. And Tila's like, well, should I go? I was like, do I feel right about that? Should I go? Shouldn't I go? And the Tila's parents, well, we already got the tickets. We're happy to give them to you. And Tila said, you know what? We should go. We should go. It's been a hundred plus days. We haven't had any fun. We can't just be miserable and sad. We got to like make ourselves happy. It's a mitzvah to be happy. We should go. And I'm like, all right, Tila wants to go. Who am I to be holier than Tila? Fine. If she thinks it's holy, I think it's holy. That's usually my rule. And so we went out to the night and then it was so funny. I've seen all of my friends. All of my friends are like the most dedicated. They're either in the army, fighting for Israel online. They're doing something that is making me be friends with them. Like the best people ever. And we're all in this stand-up comedy thing. And of course it, it became like, we can't, we're, we are defeating the Hamas by going out to comedy for Kobe. We're not going to let the Hamas keep us down. We're going to be happy and we're going to go back to our lives. And it became like an ideological, like, I'm like, wow, we've turned stand-up comedy into an ideological stance in our war against the Hamas. But in some ways, that's kind of true. Like everything takes on a whole new level of meaning that just didn't exist before this war. Everything now is meaningful. I'll tell you, Shabbat on the farm. Um, I just, I was overwhelmed so many times with tears that were just kind of like my, like, you know, like just, they just kind of flood your eyelids and then they just kind of come down. You can't really do anything about it, but you don't know what else to do because you're just overwhelmed with emotions. And I'm looking around and nothing that special is happening. It's just the feelings that I have in the context in which we're living now. Everything is more meaningful. You know, sometimes people ask me, and I don't know why they, they it's like I have sometimes an address for these kind of questions, but they say, and they like, you know, Jeremy, what is the purpose of all of this creation? 
And there are a lot of ancient Jewish answers to that question. But lately, I feel this deep impression that doesn't come from the books or writings. Just over the last 100 plus days now during this war, I've experienced this deep feeling more times than I remember feeling in my whole life. And there are moments that you're so engaged, so in love, so overtaken by reality that there are no words that can describe it. When my boys came home after a week of not seeing them in the middle of this war, you just can't take life for granted. And there are moments that are ineffable. Just seeing them come home, I'm like filled with tears in my eyes. They're not in the army, but they've been away for the week. And they come home and I'm just, there. You have you have to say they're God moments because they are transcendent. The laws of time and space don't apply all there is, is just that moment. And it's like those moments justify everything else. Those moments are so precious. And since this war, I've found more and more of those moments where it's almost like God is revealing himself in my life more and more. And everything has become more sensitive, more meaningful, more love. And the little things that I would take for granted, there is no taking anything for granted anymore. When you wake up every morning and you look for the words, Hutar le Pirsum, it is now ready for publication. And you know you're going to read the names of soldiers that have fallen. And that's pretty much the reality every day in Israel. You can't take anything for granted. And so this fellowship, I don't take it for granted at all. It is a lifeline. For me, for Ari, for Tehila, it is the source of blessing in our lives. And so I want to take this time to bring our hearts together and kick off this fellowship with a prayer. Hashem, Master of the world, our Father in heaven, creator of everyone and everything, thank you for bringing us together today. It's Sunday, the first day of the week, and no matter what happens around us, we continue to gather here, to realign, to return, to start our week off in your order. And as the world continues toward chaos, we turn to you for order, for shelter, for guidance. May the Torah we learn together today enter our hearts, inspire our lives, and inspire the lives of our loved ones around us. Hashem, shield our soldiers from evil. Guard them and bring them home safely to their families. Give them the strength and courage and wisdom they need to overcome all the obstacles they face. Hashem, give strength to all of Israel now. Fill your people with faith and resolve. Give the wives and the mothers that have been left behind the energy, the patience, the calm, the faith to keep on holding their homes together. Hashem, thank you for this fellowship. Thank you for this unity in a time when the world is so fractured. Thank you for this anchor in our lives. Thank you for this community that has become our family. Thank you for the Torah we learn together. And thank you for the prayers that we pray together. May our prayers be a sign of our times. And we bring more and more people together in this prayer until we finally gather together one soul at a time in your house of prayer for all nations, in Yerushalayim. Amen. All right, my friends. So I want to kick off the fellowship with um, 
just one of the greatest guys that I know. His name is Ari. You know him. He is just so good. He's just goodness covered in goodness. And so I know that he has some tour that he wanted to share. And I know that he's hosting uh, dozens of soldiers uh, at the farm tonight, specifically in his house. And so I know that he has a lot to do. So I wanted to give him the opportunity to share with us first. So Ari, if you are live, because I don't see you yet, you are on. I'm here, Jeremy. Yes. Can you hear me? Good to see you, Jeremy. Yeah. Um, I, I got to say, yeah, good, good. Um, I, I'm reluctant to even share right now because I have deeply enjoyed the first 12 minutes of this fellowship. Your words have uh, uplifted me because I'm in a place uh, of turmoil. You know, like you said, you want to share with everybody in the fellowship what it's like to be in Israel right now. And, you know, we, we have a, our program used to be called Israel Inspired, and we try to share an inspiring message, but also a true message. And there are times that are not super inspiring, that are sometimes confused. And I find that sometimes when you're at a place of strength and clarity, I'm at a place of confusion and vice versa. It's almost that Hashem puts it like that for us to be able to strengthen each other. And you've been uh, strengthening me just the last 10 minutes. It makes me... Um, you know, it makes me think that we really have to hang out more because while in some ways I've never been filled, my life has never been filled with more love and happiness. Like you said, these precious transcendent moments, um, to be honest, I've been feeling a little bit demoralized also. It's like these, you know, transcendent moments and then this feeling of, I don't know, demoralization. And, uh, and I know you can identify with me. You're not always where you are right now at this moment. I think we, we all go through it. I feel like right after October 7th, the entire nation, we were brought to our knees and we were humbled. And there's no one in the country that didn't have at least a moment, a singular moment of existential fear. You know, perhaps maybe from the first time since the foundation of the country, definitely since the Six-Day War, Okay. There hasn't been a moment like that where terror has struck the hearts of the entire nation that perhaps we would be wiped off the map, like existential. We were questioning our continued existence. I mean, as horrific and traumatizing a massacre as we face, just imagine Hashem's great kindness to us and compassion to us, that it was isolated to Hamas alone in the south and not Hezbollah in the north and Iran and Syria. We've talked about it before, but just imagine that they all attacked together because most reports are saying that was the plan. But nonetheless, you know, I don't know if you remember, but in the days afterwards, immediately afterwards, we thought an all out attack from the countries around us, from the issue, from the Arab villages around us all at once that outnumbered us exponentially was a real possibility. And it wasn't clear that we would survive that if they did. It felt like we were grasped for some sort of stability, for some sort of surety, somewhere, anywhere, someone we could rely on, somewhere we could put our faith in, and there was none. There was none other than Hashem. And for me, it was a terrifying moment, but it was also a liberating moment because it was a moment full of hope that we were literally on the cusp of redemption, that that to me is the ingredients of what we as a nation needed to be where we needed to be holding to experience redemption. You know, the, the issues that had been deeply dividing us just two days earlier seemed small and irrelevant, and we were coming together in a unity like none of us had ever experienced in our lifetimes. We, we were humbled individually and nationally. We were calling out to Hashem from the deepest place. I just, 
I don't know about you, Jeremy, but I really thought, I still think that really would have been a perfect time. That would have been a perfect time for salvation and for redemption. But here we are 106 days later. And not only haven't we been redeemed, but it feels like we are becoming increasingly confused and disillusioned and disoriented. And it feels like we're losing a little bit of that unity. And, you know, maybe not. Honestly, hearing you, maybe not. Maybe I'm just projecting what's happening inside of me and inside my own heart. But I can't help but to think that if it's happening to me, it's happening to others in their hearts and their minds as well. I didn't even know if I was going to share this, but this is just one small example of what I'm talking about that just threw me off for a number of days. A few days ago, <coughs> a guy named uh, Ami Ayalon, he's one of the prior heads of the Shin Bet of Israel's Secret Service, came out and recommended that Israel release Marwan Barghouti from prison. Marwan Barghouti, the convicted terrorist who murdered at least five Jews, wounded, maimed countless others, and that is who Ami Ayalon wanted to release from prison. Why? Brace yourself. He wanted to release him from prison and send him back to the Palestinian Authority so that we would have someone to negotiate with. It's just, it's, I don't even understand it. It's insane. It's insane. And I'll admit that when I heard this idea and other insane suicidal ideas that got us into this nightmare to begin with, I started feeling, I'm ashamed to say it, but I, I felt a hatred in my heart. At least I think it was hatred. I felt such a disdain in my heart for these people who have shown that they're willing to subject the nation to another October 7th in order to find favor in the eyes of the West. I wanted I wanted him to be locked up for treason at the very least. You know, these sorts of delusions are what got us into October 7th, and they're starting to return. And we have those among our leadership right now that are cramming it down on, 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 on our nation on behalf of these foreign powers. And I confess that there are moments that I'm just, I'm, that's what I'm saying. I'm feeling this hatred and division. And, and that, just those feelings in my heart in and of themselves is, is breaking me sometimes. That I have uh, allow anything but love to enter my heart is so sad for me. It's so heartbreaking for me. And there are moments when I find myself doubting whether we as a nation are in a place where we even deserve to be redeemed anymore. It feels to me like we're losing focus, like we've taken our eye off the prize. It feels like there was a moment when we really deserved redemption and we're losing it right now, and we may not deserve it anymore. But I started getting um, hope when reading through this portion again and thinking, really, Jeremy, you started the, the uh, dominoes of hope for me uh, earlier in the week when you shared this idea, because we see in Parshat Bo that what actually caused Hashem to hear B'nai Israel the children of Israel, from within their horrific, heartbreaking, back-breaking servitude in Egypt. What actually caused Hashem to intervene in history and change the natural order of things was what? Chapter 2, verse 23. B'nai Israel sighed from the labor, and they cried out, and their cry ascended to Hashem from the labor, from their work. It wasn't it wasn't their perfectly articulated liturgy that stirred Hashem to intervene in history on their behalf. And it wasn't some sort of, you know, national unity. At least that's not what it's like. What was it? It was that they just were broken. They just cried out. It was their visceral moans of anguish that reached Hashem. It was their 
raw, unadulterated outcry of, of distress and devastation that reached directly to the throne of glory. Jeremy, so do you remember what you said to me? I was looking for it. I couldn't find the thing. It was using a different Yeah, verse. it's really interesting what you're saying here because you <laughs> quoted the verse where it says, and they called out to Hashem, that they were like crying out to God. I pointed out a verse a little bit later in chapter 6, verse 5. And what does it say there? It says, et na'akat Israel. And I na'akat. heard na'akat, almost like the moaning or the cries of B'nai Israel that were in uh, as slaves in Egypt, and I will remember my covenant with them. And that word there is really interesting because na'aka is not za'aka. Za'aka is like, I'm called God, help me, I'm calling out to God. Na'aka is a very unique word. It's not really mentioned any other time in the Torah. And the word na'aka is actually a female camel. That's the, like, it's the same word, moaning. But that moan there, where they're still not redeemed, they're not even crying out to God. They're just crying and moaning because Pharaoh made their work that much harder and they're still slaves. And now they're, it's almost like they've given up on crying out to God. Now they're just like a physical cry of a, like a, a female camel. It's like the physical of they're just like, Oh, and God heard that. Uh-huh. So it's, it's even stronger, a stronger point than what I was saying. Because the verse I shared is that they're za'aka, they're crying out, Hashem, help us. And you're saying beyond that, when they're even more broken, that they can't even direct their cries upward, and it's just a animal sound of brokenness. That's what Hashem heard in addition to that. And, um, and, and I feel like we still have that. You know, we have that just this morning, you know, on the way to Minyan, where we pray in the morning, we pass by this white prayer tent. You know, for the soldier's family that is sitting shiver right there in the village. This picture you're seeing right here, this is a soldier that just died. Just now. We woke up this morning, 6 a.m., and that's the face that we saw. Uriel Aviad Silverman, 23 years old, cut down in the prime of his life. His entire future ahead of him. Another family destroyed. Another mother, father in anguish. Siblings devastated. Not a, Never going to be the same again. Another jewel from the nation of Israel, violently ripped away from us by evil incarnate. And not only that, reports are coming in that they're finding proof that many of the kidnapped people have been horrifically tortured and are dead. And we're just hearing every day how much closer we are to, to all-out war breaking out in the north, in which so many of the soldiers, Jeremy's talking about all of our friends that are being released back to their families after months of fighting in Gaza, their children are finally coming to terms with, yes, that is, he's here, he's alive, my father is here. After all these months of dealing with that and reintegration, and they all are very acutely aware that, yet again, they will most likely be called back to war, possibly very soon. It's exhausting, and it's demoralizing. And as a nation, we are, we are moaning in grief and pain and trepidation and sometimes it feels that the only thing we have left is hope because you know there's a fundamental teaching that during the plague of darkness the wicked evildoers of the nation of israel died the ones without faith they died but the great sage known as the rush teaches that 
Datan and Aviram, you remember them? These really evil characters. They were spared that death during that plague. Because why? Because they never gave up hope of being redeemed. Meaning, like Rav Biederman says, that as someone as evil as Datan and Aviram merited salvation merely by virtue of the fact that they didn't lose hope of receiving. We need to have hope. Even if we're in the heart of Mitzrayim, and I'm only talking about the country of Mitzrayim, the headspace of Mitzrayim. I've been there, part of me is there right now. <coughs> the headspace of Beitzari, right? Narrow straits. We need to have hope even when we're so deep in this headspace of constriction and scarcity and hopelessness that we don't know that any other frame of mind is even possible. Right? Even in that space of extreme constriction and hopelessness, particularly in that space, we need to grasp onto our hope for dear life. We need to hold on to our faith, even if we're in this place of spiritual constraints so great that like the Jews in Egypt, we couldn't even imagine a way out of it. We need to not only hope, but we need to know as much as we can that the degree of hopelessness that it appears that we're in is inversely proportional to the degree of absolute salvation and redemption that we'll experience on the other side of this. Get ready for this, right? Rav Biederman brings this teaching from the Khatam Sofer, points out that the Jews, initially in their slavery, they were confused about how it was even possible that they were enslaved to Egypt to begin with. Why? Because the Mitzrim, Mitzrayim, the Egyptians, were descendants from Ham, from Ham, right? Who was the son of Noah. And the Torah clearly tells us that as a punishment for the sin that he had against his father Noah, Ham's descendants would be slaves to Shem's descendants. And as you know, the nation of Israel is descended from Shem, which, by the way, is where the word anti-Semite comes from. I don't like the word, but it means those that are against the descendants of Shem, anti-Shemites. So it seems like, according to the Torah, Israel being slave to Mitzrayim, to Egypt, should be impossible. Right? Let's look inside. Let's look inside. Genesis chapter 9. When Noah woke up from his wine and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, right, from, from him. The lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. And as we read in the next chapter, right, chapter 10, the descendants of Ham, Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. Meaning that Canaan, that Mitzrayim, that Put, that Cush are supposed to be slaves to Shem. How could it possibly be that the descendants of Shem are the, ser are the servants and the, uh, to the descendants of, of Ham? It should be the other way around. They couldn't rationally understand it and no one could. But that's where the faith comes in. That the, the faith that Hashem has a plan that our limited intellect cannot possibly grasp, but someday we'll see and understand. And the nation of Israel indeed did come to understand it. As the Torah tells us, when they were redeemed from Egypt and they found this extraordinary, inexplicable grace in the eyes of the Egyptians, who showered them with all of their wealth, right? Uh, Exodus chapter 12. And Hashem had disposed the Egyptians favorably towards the people, and they let them have their request. Thus they emptied out the Egyptians. They emptied out all of Mitzrayim. Meaning, all of those years when it seemed that they were working for free for the Egyptians, it was not that they were working for the Egyptians. It was that the Egyptians were working for them. The Egyptians were working to send the children of Israel away with overwhelming abundance and wealth as they left Egypt. The Jews weren't working for the Egyptians. They were working for themselves, and they couldn't possibly have imagined it at the time. And that's where we are right now. It's hard to understand how all of this darkness can bring light, 
It's hard to imagine how, how this could turn around for the good, but it will. It will. That I promise you, and that I promise myself. My friends, we should be blessed. All of us, we should be blessed with the faith and the fortitude and the spiritual strength to know that as hopeless as things may seem, Hashem has a great plan. To know that Hashem hears our cries and our anguish. To know that our moans of pain and heartbreak are reaching the thrones of glory. And they're stirring Hashem's compassion for us and His desire to redeem us. May we be blessed to know that despite the fact that we may not deserve it, the great day of salvation is coming. The day when everything will become clear to us, when we'll know that all of our pain was for a purpose and that everything that happened was for our ultimate good. May that day be soon. May that day be today. Thank you, my friends. Thank you for being there for me and uh, being my therapists in a lot of ways. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Tahila. Back to you, Jay. Thank you, Ari. That was really beautiful. Um, I, I think what's happening now is, you know, a lot of our friends that have been pulled out of the army now, they've been given notice, like, you know, just be aware things are happening. Like, it's not quiet up the north. And there are over 100,000 Jews that used to live on the northern border of Israel that have been evacuated. They are refugees in our country. So we have 100,000 Jews in the south that have been evacuated and another 100,000 Jews in the north that have been evacuated. A country can't function like that. Kids are not going to school. People are not working. It's like two regions of Israel are... I don't ever remember a, anything like this since I've been living in Israel. <laughs> I'm 44. I don't ever remember anything like this. And so um, it's kind of coming to a head because you heard what Ari said. The modern leadership of Israel, the secular paradigm through which they see the world is continuously making them make wrong decisions because the way that they're seeing everything is wrong. And, you know, I was invited to speak at the sovereignty conference just uh, a little bit more than a week ago. And I shared one of the clips kind of uh, online and it went absolutely viral. I mean, from, I don't know, it went like fire everywhere, but there are other clips that I finally clipped out that I really wanted to share with the fellowship because the phenomenon in Israel is really unbelievable because, you know, there's, battles within the non-Jewish world outside of Israel about what it is to be messianic, what it is not to be messianic. In Israel, it's a totally different discussion. And it's fascinating because right now on the mainstream media in Israel, it is the new curse word in Israel. It's like, oh, you are messianic. You're a delusional messianic. That's what they call everyone that has a little bit of a broader vision for Israel. What you want to conquer and resettle gaza oh you're a delusional messianic it's like anything what anything that's beyond toppling the military wing of the hamas for a few months if you think anything beyond that you're being labeled nowadays as a delusional messianic and i feel like that's really interesting that the battle in israel is actually coming to a head where is israel headed are we actually owning it and owning the idea that we are headed towards a messianic vision? Or are we just here to be a secular state that are making pragmatic moves and trying to find partners to negotiate with and 
will do things that are an absolute contradiction to the Torah and give land away that was promised to Israel to the enemies of Israel and hope that that will bring peace. That's obviously insane. And so I just want to share this one clip with you because my job at the conference was I everyone's talking strategy. Everyone's talking security. Everyone's talking diplomacy. Everyone's talking about politics. <laughs> and all I wanted to talk about was God. I wanted to bring God into the conversation. And so here's just a clip that I really wanted you to see. I think you'd appreciate it. I just it. want to point out an interesting phenomenon in Israeli society right now. If anyone suggests anything that's beyond the conventional wisdom or anything beyond the myopic vision of the Israeli establishment, immediately he's labeled as a delusional messianic. That's what he's called now. The new curse word in Israel is, oh, atam you are You're just delusional. And I feel like that's really interesting that that's happening now. Like, oh, this really wasn't about um, the judicial reform or legal activism or even a Palestinian state. Like, it's finally rising up to the surface the actual complication here in the state of Israel. Because the founding fathers of the modern state of Israel, they just wanted a night shelter. They wanted a safe haven for the Jews. And all of a sudden comes October 7th. And we realized the foundations of the greatest Jewish enterprise in 2,000 years was built on a false foundation. But what is a foundation that can actually hold the light that we're receiving now? What is that foundation? It's the dream that our fathers had and that our ancestors had. And we're saying, oh, we haven't given up on that dream. We're not saying it's not enough to just have peace now. No, Israel can be the safest country in the world, the most prosperous country in the world. This can be an amazing country. I'm not giving up on that dream. And if giving up on that dream is calling me a delusional messianic, then we should be honored to be guilty of that so, charge. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was interesting because you know there were a lot of claps in that conference, but every once in a while when I give like a right-left punch, the crowd just went crazy because everyone wants God to be involved here. That's why we're here. That's this entire thing is revolving around the axis of biblical destiny, and we can try to deny it, but you know who's not going to let us off the hook? are our enemies because Hashem has chosen our enemies. The Hamas are not a coincidence. They are designed, programmed to attack us for a very specific purpose. And that was another message that I gave at the conference. And I just want to, I couldn't, couldn't be there in Jerusalem in the auditorium, but here's just another little highlight that I know you'll appreciate. I'm saying we need to go down to the root and reset. And what I'm saying is a new vision for Israel. What is Be'emunah? What does that really mean? It means that October 7th didn't happen to us. It happened for us to wake us up, to guide us to the right path, that we should not continue on this boat that's literally on its way to the edge of Niagara Falls and maybe establishing a Palestinian state. It's like, whoa, we can read, we can use the Bechira now, but let's choose the destination. The destination should not be a night shelter. Here's the thing, the, the, the design of our enemies, they're never going to stop. They are never, no amount of money, no amount of land, no amount of concessions. It's programmed into them. They've been indoctrinated with a religious ideology, and they are going to force us to become the people we were created to be and to become the country we are destined to be. So we have to choose it, or it will choose us. Yeah. 
<laughs> Amen. We have to choose it or it will choose us. That's the thing. Jewish destiny, biblical destiny, the promises of the Torah, they are a must. They're not a choice. They will unfold. The destiny will happen. And I was reading up on this week's Parsha and something beautiful happened because it's the first time where God gives an insight into Israel and he sees that he doesn't really trust us to go according to plan. And he sees that somehow this generation that's leaving Egypt, they need a little bit more prep time. They need some time in the desert. If you look at Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, here's what it says. Can we get it up on the screen, please? Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. Now, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although it was nearer. For God said the people may have a change of heart when they see war and return to Egypt. So the original plan was God was going to take us from Egypt and just go right up through the Gaza Strip and right through the Negev Desert, right into Israel. That would have been the quickest way to go. And God said, mm, I don't think the people of Israel are ready for that. At the beginning of their journey, God saw into their hearts. And he said, no, they may have a change of heart when they see war and they'll want to return to Egypt. And now I think 3,000 years later, a war is happening in the land of the Philistines in southern Israel, the same place that God did not want Israel to go through because they would be scared of war. And now you see 300,000 brave young men and women that have enrolled into reserve duty to go all the way down to that land and to face war head on. And what a change from the first thing God says about Israel as they're leaving Egypt. He's saying, no, they're just not strong enough yet. What you're seeing right now is Israel is stronger than ever. And at the very beginning, it's been a 3,000-year process. But did you know that over 200,000 Jews that were all scattered around the world got on planes and went to Israel in the middle of the war? There is no country in the world, not America, not Europe, not the Ukraine, nowhere in the East, nowhere in the West, when a war breaks out, that its civilians come back to the land. On the contrary, when war breaks out, civilians leave the land. And here what we're seeing is that the Jewish people have become strong enough to not only face the land of the Philistines, but to go down there to go and face the evil and be victorious. And what a beautiful thing to see that like circuit finally closed. And so I'm kind of looking at things and I'm wondering like, wow, Israel is so courageous now. Like the people of Israel are so strong. Like, I've never seen Israel like this before. So united, so powerful, so selfless, so giving. Just, it's like, you know, the Talmud says that Israel is an, an analogous to olives. Israel is like symbolized by the olive branch. And why is that? Because under extreme pressure, the pure oil comes out. And so when you put Israel under extreme pressure, the most beautiful parts of us come out into the world. And you see that the pressure of October 7th and the war just brought out the pure olive oil of Israel for the world to see. And, you know, I've um, taken it upon myself since October 7th 
to become more active. You know, for five years after moving to the Aru Goat Farm, I kind of went off the radar. I was, you know, I didn't want to attract too much attention. <laughs> we almost had our vineyards uprooted. Like sometimes, um, the Gemara says it's sometimes blessing resides on things that are hidden from the eye. So I I don't I don't Facebook I don't do Twitter I don't do those things, but October seventh came and I was like oh Israel needs this now believers around the world they need this Torah they need this light they need this encouragement I'm going to start to engage again I'll start making short videos I I since the war over uh, two million views on YouTube it's really been unbelievable and I said okay well if I have to choose a platform that I want to start to communicate with I don't really trust any of these platforms. But it seems like Twitter is the one that seems the most fair, that there's not like some power that's manipulating or shadow banning you. So I get my news from Twitter and I started tweeting out a little bit. And in one of these tweets, if we could just put it up on the screen for those that don't have Twitter, I want you to see this. So so what does it say here? In 1967, no, because in the times of Israel, that's how I got my news. Netanyahu says the war against the Hamas is set to continue into 2025, TV report, Times of Israel. And I thought to myself, 2000, I've, what? This started in 2023. And now we're at the beginning of 2024. He's saying it's going to go into 2025. What is going on here? That is crazy, 2025. In 1967, Israel won a war against multiple armies and liberated the Golan, the Sinai, Judea, Samaria, and Jerusalem in six days. Now defeating a terror organization is going to take years? The powers that be don't want this war to ever end. Israel must resist. And I've been thinking a lot about that. The powers that be don't want this war to ever end. And when you think about the Biden administration and what they are pushing for, and I mean, the, the response, let's create a Palestinian state. Could there be a response that is more delusional than that? Like, well, they've raped us. They've killed us. They've kidnapped our children. They've, and well, let's give them a state. That's obviously the, that it's like, that should be the reward of we're rewarding them with a state. Like it's delusional, but what would a state do? A state would embroil Israel in this war forever. And the powers that be, and you know, I don't really know who the powers are. Are the powers the politicians? Are the powers the corporations? Are the powers the military complex that's you know making so much money in a perpetual war? The rockets we have to buy and the ammunition we have to buy and the technologies we have to develop. There's an interest to keep Israel at this war forever. And I started to think the powers that be, that's a really unique kind of language that's used. And Ari asked me maybe two weeks ago if I would write a song based on a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 39. And if we could get that up on the screen, this is the verse. And you shall know this day and restore it into your heart that Hashem is Elohim. In heaven above and on the earth beneath, there is no other. So thinking a lot about that. So first, it's to restore it into our heart. It's not just to know it, but it's to bring it into our heart, to restore it into our heart. That Hashem is the Elohim. Now, in English, it just says that the Lord is God. That's not what the Hebrew is saying. 
the Hebrew is saying something really profound. What does the word Elohim mean? So for those of you that know Hebrew, when there is a yud mem, im, at the end of a word, it's plural. So maim is like waters, or sfarim is books. Sefer is book, sfarim is books. Yeled is child, yeladim is children. Ben is a boy, banim is boys. Elohim, that ends with im, is plural. So it's saying Hashem is Elohim. What does the word El mean? El means powers, God, powers. And so the powers that be, the powers that be, that actually is not a bad name to understand what the word Elohim is. It's not that there's, you know, solar energy and there's the wind God and there's the moon God and there's corporations and there's politicians and there's the military industrial complex. And these powers are all, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and George Soros or on or whatever the conspiracy theories are, but like Bill Gates is doing his thing. All no, no, no. Hashem, ooh, ha Elohim, all of those powers that you think are actually running the world, they're not running the world. They're the powers that be. Hashem is the powers that be. That needs to go into our heart. That's really what the messianic vision is, to realize that everything that's being set up, it's not the military-industrial complex. It's Hashem that's right now forcing Israel to be independent of the American-industrial complex. It's forcing Israel to be a country that stands alone, that stands alone because it stands with God. Hashem Huai Elohim is saying that we think that there are all these different powers that are running the world or conspiracies and things. And no, 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 no. Hashem, He is the sum of all powers in the world. And they're actually all unified and under His control. And He's just, they're just puppets in His hand. And they are all there in order to bring about His ultimate plan. Once we internalize, that everything that is happening in Israel is actually about the destiny of Israel. It's about the inextricable relationship that the Jewish people have with God, a covenant, a promise that will be fulfilled, a promise that must be fulfilled. See, if you see Israel through a secular paradigm or through a political lens, like the mainstream Israeli establishment does right now, everything you see is warped. You won't understand what happened. You won't have the ability to understand what the future holds. You can't see the present for what it is. You won't learn any of the lessons that need to be learned because you're looking in the wrong direction because you're not looking to God for answers. Imagine for just a minute, God forbid, October 7th would have happened in Shiloh, in Samaria. What would the lessons have been learned from the mainstream Israeli establishment? I can hear the left-wing secular Israeli media in my ear already. If October 7th would have happened in Samaria, it would have been, it's the settlers. It's the settler violence that instigated the massacre. It's their fault for being there to begin with. The Jews shouldn't be in Judea and Samaria. We need a peace now. We need to create a Palestinian state immediately to stop this conflict because it's the settlers that are the problem. The exact wrong lesson would have been learned but October 7th exposed the truth. It's undeniable now. We saw the true evil of our enemy 
and what they've been planning to do to us for years. Now there's no excuses. All of the veils have been removed. The kibbutzim, they weren't right-wing settlers. Those kibbutzim were the most peace-loving, coexistent, pro-Arab people in Israel. And the war in Israel, it's not about Judea and Samaria, or the West Bank as they call it. This war is not about 1967 borders, because Kibbutz Be'eri, that was established in 1946, before the establishment of the State of Israel. They were Jews, and so the Arabs were attacking Jews. Nothing to do with any political borders. The war isn't about where borders are supposed to be drawn. There isn't one map in Gaza, and there isn't a single map in any Arab-Palestinian school in Israel that shows a map where just Judea and Samaria is the Palestinian state. Like the West Bank, that's the Palestinian state that they're striving for. Every single map shows the entire land of Israel. October 7th, the murder, the torture, the children, the rape, the hostages. It's forcing Israel to encounter reality. That we have evil in the land of Israel, and it's been programmed religiously indoctrinated to hate Jews in a way that we can't even understand. We don't know what it's like to be indoctrinated when you're in kindergarten to kill the Jew, kill the Christian, first the Saturday people, then the Sunday people, kill the infidel, kill. We just, we can't even imagine. It's so difficult for us to really relate to our enemies. But never forget the glee and the exuberance that the Gazans showed as they celebrated our massacre on October 7th. See, America is demanding that Israel create a Palestinian state, retreating from more land with the delusional hope that that's going to somehow bring peace now. It's nothing less than national suicide. It's like the Arabs murdered, raped, and they're still holding our innocent hostages. It blows my mind that the reaction in the West to October 7th is, well, let's give them some more land and give them a state of their own. That's insane. And so October 7th has to force us to change our foundational mentality. We have to transition now, like a total reset. And what does that reset look like? It means renewing our faith, reality, our history, the Torah, the prophets, the sages of Israel. Our 4,000 years of collective wisdom point us to a certain truth. Jewish history is guided it's a directed reality that must be, that will be. Every force known to humanity has tried to extinguish the fire of the Jewish people and the Torah. And beyond all logic and all reason, we are back in the land of Israel again, as promised by every prophet in the Bible. See, a great light came into the world in 1948, and it's still something that the nation of Israel is processing. Do we really understand what it means that the Jewish people have returned to Eretz Israel after 2,000 years? You have to stand in awe at the mystery of Jewish destiny. As we're watching it unfold before our eyes, we saw in the last generation the mass graves of dry bones and ashes that Ezekiel saw before the rise of the Jewish people and the resurrection of the state of Israel. And we've seen all the laws of history and nature bend or break with Jewish history, unlike any other people on the planet. And yet still somehow the perfect balance of free will has been maintained to offer everyone the opportunity 
to choose our destiny. Do we align ourselves with God? Do we align ourselves with the Bible? Do we align ourselves with the good, the true? Do we align ourselves with love? Or do we side with the murderers, the rapists, the anti-truth people? The choice now we have as a nation. And what do we need to do now? We have to reclaim the Jewish dream. The dream that God gave the prophets of Israel. The dreams that we've been praying for. That we believed in for thousands of years. So right now Israel needs a new vision. King Solomon, the wisest of all men, said, Without vision, the nation will perish. The direction the leaders of Israel are taking us is ensuring that there will never be peace in this land and another war and another October 7th are waiting for us down the road, but the next time it'll be worse because their weapons will be more sophisticated. And America is trying to embroil us in this conflict and never let us out of it. And so we have to stand up against this administration. We have to wait, maybe, please God, for a new administration to arise. But really, we have to wait for Israel to rise up and say, we don't need any administration. We don't need America and we don't need Europe. All we need is to do what's right, what's moral, what's true, and follow God's way. Everything else will fall into place. You know, even if you think about the national anthem of Israel, it's called Hatikva, which means the hope. Hatikva Bachnot Alpain, Lihiot Am the dream of 2,000 years to be a free people in our land. A hope of 2,000 years to be a free people in our land. That's not really the dream, to be just free from oppression. Hoping for peace and quiet in our land is the best way to ensure that there will never be peace and quiet. You just want peace and quiet? That's all that we're after? I'm sorry. We have to aim much higher than that. If you ask every Jew in the world, every Jew, what is our purpose as the Jewish people? And it doesn't matter if they're right, if they're left, if they're orthodox, if they're reform. Every Jew knows that there is a purpose to the Jewish people. Now, it manifests maybe in different ways according to your ideology, but the purpose will always be the same. Tikkun olam, to fix the world. That's why the Jews were brought in here. Adam and Eve, they made a mistake, and then we were brought into a broken world. And the Jewish people were the doctors, were the soul doctors. We're going to fix this world slowly but surely. Tikkun olam, to fix the world. That's our purpose. But that's not enough. Because the verse is tikkun olam b'malchut shaddai. To fix the world through the kingdom of God. One Jew, maybe he can save a whale. Maybe you can help an orphan. How much can one Jew really do? You want to fix the world? You, have, you need a kingdom. You need to operate on an international level. And only a kingdom has the power to actually bring a new light to the nations. That needs to be the foundation of what Israel is. That's the only foundation that this Jewish enterprise can really be built upon, that can endure forever. That's the only vision that will bring not only peace now, but peace forever. So our goal must be to build a country inspired by the vision of the prophets, guided by the commands of the Torah. We have to build a country that fosters a society that's worthy of being the dwelling place for Hashem's presence on earth. That was always our collective vision for the future of Israel. 
That was the ancient dream that we believed in. That's what we were praying for. That's what we were ready to die for. And that's what Israel must aim toward. Nothing less than a country worthy of being called God's kingdom on earth. And so I think that this war is really forcing us. What are we ready to die for? Are we ready to die for a night shelter that in case Jews are persecuted around the world, they'll have a place to run to and have like another Canada that happens to be in the Middle East, a Hebrew speaking Canada. Is that really what we're doing here? Obviously not. Obviously not. So it's now come to surface. Do we have a messianic vision for the future of Israel? That's what this is all about. Because that's the only thing that's worth fighting for. That's the only thing that's worth dying for. To actually bring peace forever. That Israel could be the most prosperous, the safest, the light that the world needs now so much. That's our aim and that's our goal. And that will only happen when we invite Hashem into this conversation, when we invite Hashem into our lives on an individual level, when we invite Hashem into our lives on a national level. And so with that, that's kind of what this fellowship is really all about. And how beautiful it is that it's able to transcend nationalities, religions, cultures, languages, because Hashem transcends all of that. It's the only thing that can bring us all together. A brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God. That's it. Nothing else will ever work. And the amazing thing is that there's a system in place that's going to bring that out in us, whether we like it or not. Either we can choose it or it will choose us. Those are the options. And Hashem says in the Torah, choose life so that you may live. That is where we need to go, to choose life so that we may live. All right, my friends, with that, I want to end with a bracha, a blessing to all of you that are here live today. You don't understand how happy I am to see all of your faces it really makes my week in such a profound way. Um, just to see, I remember Rodrigo was there. He was just driving with his family, but he turned the Zoom on and saw his kids in the back and all of you that are sitting around, couples and families. And I see you from Germany and South Africa and Oak and Virginia. Just, I see all of you. And I just thank you so much for joining us and for being a part of us. And um, it's like our hearts are being knitted together to show the world what it would be like to be like like one person with one heart, with one nation, with one land, with one God. How beautiful it is for us to express that in the world, to reflect that in the world. What greater thing could we do in this time of war than to bring that vision of unity and peace and love together? So with that, may you all be blessed. I just want to end off this fellowship with one last prayer. I was uh, blessed at the very beginning. As soon as the hostages were taken, I must have sung this prayer a hundred times with my children, just me and my guitar and my children singing 
for the hostages. There's actually a, an old Jewish prayer for Jews that are being held captive, that are in trouble. And uh, a marvelous music video came out with it. And so I released it on the 100 days of their being captive, and it just spread around the world. And so I thought that would be a beautiful way to end this fellowship with that prayer and that song together. And so thank you all. Thank you, Tabitha, for putting together that slideshow as the fellowship is getting ready. It is so beautiful and so touching and just a wonderful insight into all of the behind the scenes that are happening in Israel, in our families and with our soldiers. And so here's our prayer called Achenu, our brothers and sisters. So let's end it off with a prayer together with this song. Thank you all. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.